The American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, cinematographer Jendra Jarnigan joins us to talk about the trajectory of her career leading up to her current role as one of the series cinematographers on the CBS police procedural East New York. The last few years for me before I got this this show were probably the most challenging professionally of my entire life. And I was just like, I need a TV show. (laughs) Like, I need something with financial security and stability that I know is actually going to happen. And then I got one. But first, the December 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now, with a cover featuring cinematographer Autumn Durald Arcapa, ASC, photographed at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood, California, by Society member Michael M. Pessa. In this issue, Arkapaw reflects on the career arc that led her to Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Also in this issue, Darius Kanji, ASC, AFC, and Alejandro G. Inaritu craft mind-bending visuals for Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Alex Dysenhoff, ASC, details his approach to Amazon's epic fantasy series, The Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And Chase Irvin, ASC, CSC, reimagines a Hollywood icon in Blonde. Also be on the lookout for a shot craft on production budgets for cinematographers. A picture partners on the collaboration between Mandy Walker, ASC, ACS, and director Boz Luhrmann for Elvis. And a virtual world look at Disney Plus's The Book of Boba Fett, shot by society members David Klein, Dean Cundy, and Paul Hewan. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skills, this five-day seminar is taught by top directors of photography in person at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques, as well as instruction in current workflow practices. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place January 23rd to the 27th and May 22nd to the 26th. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now... It's time for the interview. Since graduating from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, Jendra Jarnigan has accumulated more than 25 years' experience as a cinematographer, photographing a wide range of projects including feature films, episodic television and online series, commercials, music videos, documentaries, virtual reality experiences, and art films. Her work has been screened at the Whitney Museum, the UN, and numerous film festivals worldwide, including Sundance, Tribeca, and Camera Image. And now, for CBS, she's the alternating series cinematographer, along with Zeus Morand on East New York, an ensemble drama that explores modern issues around policing. In our conversation, we'll get into the hurdles and milestones that led Jendra to this significant opportunity and talk about the experience and skills she gained along the way. Thanks for being here, Jendra. Thanks for having me. It's nice to catch up with you. I think the last time we talked was 
for a story in the magazine about that web series you did, Puppy Love, um, that you shot with the Red One, one of the first Red Ones back in, in 2008. Was it 2009? I think that's that's when it was released, but we actually shot it in 2007. It was really early in the, the, the transition, right, from... from um, film to digital cinema. Yeah, I mean, Red, of course, being the the first, well, not the first, there were certainly some high-end cameras like the Viper and the Panavision Genesis, but up until then, it was, you know, HD video being appropriated for low-budget filmmaking, and that, that was really the start of the really digital cinema explosion or digital cinema for the masses. Yeah, I think that was the first story I did on the Red camera, for the magazine, and I, that that might have been the first time we spoke too. I think. Yeah, that was a that was a, a milestone for me then to to have my first uh, article uh, in American Cinematographer magazine. What, what was that? Uh, I guess fifteen. It's fifteen years. Wow. Know, almost fifteen years. Yeah. <laughs> so, what have you been up to since then? Um, mostly shooting feature films, uh, indie features, uh, up until now. When I uh, recently have landed my first uh, full. A broadcast television series called East New York, which has been a, a big uh, career milestone and, and goal achieved that I've been working towards for many, many years. Uh, in the meantime, I've, I've been doing independent features, some music videos and commercials, uh, mostly beauty and tabletop commercials, some documentaries, a little bit of everything. Um, uh, my, my most significant credit in, in the feature world is a film called Asking For It, uh, that was that's available on Hulu. Uh, tr- premiered at Tribeca and was uh, got a theatrical distribution by Paramount. It's a female vigilante thriller uh, with an ensemble cast with Kiersey Clemens, Alexandra Ship, uh, Vanessa Hudgens, Ezra Miller, David Patrick Kelly, Rada Mitchell, Luke Hemsworth, Gabby Sidibe. Got quite a cast, and so that that was a. Uh, one of my favorite projects to date. It's great to hear that um, you've been so busy, and, and congratulations on on the network gig. I know that's a big deal for you, and you've been working towards a job like that for a while now. And and really, I, I don't know a lot of people really who who hustle <laughs> as uh, as hard as you do. Um, and and that that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today, really, to begin with the work that you're well, the work that you're doing now, but then you know all of the work and experience that led you up to that point. Because I think what is distinctive about you uh, as a cinematographer is that your reputation as a cinematographer doesn't begin and end with the camera. I've really come to think of you as a, a cinematography booster. Uh, you're, you're a regular on the festival circuit. Uh, you're, you're involved with the ASC's uh, Motion Imaging Technology Council. There's that homage uh, to the World War II We Can Do It campaign, which you said was was done for your personal business card, right? But, you know, it ended up on the cover of Movie Maker magazine. And when you're not working, you're at industry screenings and events, uh, you're online, you're an American cinematographer magazine. Um, you've been such an, a ubiquitous presence in cinematography circles, you know, particularly in New York, where we are now, um, that even if I found that even if someone hasn't met you yet, they've probably heard of you. But, you know, for those who don't know, let's start with a little bit of your personal background. Like, what first drew you to the art of cinematography? Uh, when I was 12, I guess, uh, in middle school, I was selected for an extracurricular gifted and talented program where uh, an, an, art, an arts program where you could pick a field of, of study that would take you outside of school for like one day a month and go 
uh, focus on something beyond what was offered in the in the regular middle school curriculum. And um, I don't remember, or maybe I never knew who selected me for that program, but my teachers would have nominated me. And I just got a form one day in my homeroom being like, you've been selected for this program. And it, it was just like some checkboxes of like, what are your interests? And one of the options was video production. And I'd never thought of it before. And, and probably what sounded interesting uh, about it was maybe some of the other options on there did not uh, seem to resonate <laughs> with me. I don't even remember what the other choices were. But I, I checked a box. I checked a box for video production. And uh, I, you know, the program was at a local uh, public access station for for Cox Cable and we were we had a mentor that ran the program and I remember walking in there and seeing all of these people doing these really interesting jobs like you know the control room and the studio and you know be, being at the age that I was I had never considered that that was uh, a job or or a career choice you know when when you're young and you know what do you want to be when you grow up like the, the options that are you know you're exposed to are like you know lawyer doctor astronaut firefighter <laughs> that that kind of thing and so when i saw these people at this tv station it instantly clicked that movie making was a profession and and i was not at a movie studio i was, a, I was at a cable access station but it you know got the cylinders firing that i i loved movies and i loved books i really loved books as a kid i loved storytelling and i loved photography and so you know i i started in this program and really really thrived there like like found my calling if you will really easy really early on like it came really easily to me and everyone in the program was just like wow you are you know really talented in these Arenas. So it, it took a few years, of, and that became my main interest and, and passion once I discovered it. And so within a few years of studying, uh, I learned about the cinematographer and, and that, that it was not the director or the director alone who was responsible for the aspects of filmmaking that were where my interests and talents lied. So, you know, up until then, I would you know, this was before the internet, before, you know, DVD commentaries. The only sort of exposure I had had to uh, seeing any behind the scenes or nuts and bolts of filmmaking was like maybe a, a small featurette on PBS with Steven Spielberg. You only ever saw the director and the actors being interviewed and talking about their roles. So come to find out that it was the cinematographer's duties and areas of, of expertise, I was quite surprised to learn uh, that I might not want to be a director, that I might actually want to be a cinematographer. So I, I kept that in mind and continued to learn about that and was like, well, where do I go from here? And the the guy who ran the program, his name is Mark Cavanaugh, told me about NYU. And I applied early decision to NYU. Uh, I considered uh, California, but my parents were not okay with me moving so far away. I, I grew up with very uh, modest family income and the idea of like flying to California or my family can't come see me because I'm in California or I don't come home often because I'm in California was really not appealing to anybody. <laughs> so I grew up in Rhode Island. So uh, I applied early decision to NYU. I had no safety school. My backup plan if I didn't get in was to just go to local state college and then reapply. It was like, I'll just keep, 
I'll, I'll reassess. If that doesn't happen, I'll, I'll figure out what to do next. And uh, I got in. Uh, so, so I went to NYU for undergrad uh, with the possibility that maybe I want to direct, but I probably want to be a cinematographer. I don't really know until I do do them for real as opposed to my idea of what I think they are. And within a year or two of film school, I was like, yep, cinematography is, is for me and, and what I want to focus on. Right, because in that program, don't they give you the opportunity to try a lot of different aspects of the filmmaking process? Like you have to grip on a classmate's project. You also have to be the electrician. Then you have to And you have to, to do sound, sound and you have to write and, write and you have to do editing, at least at the undergrad level. By the time you people apply to grad school, then they're applying either for a directing track or a cinematography track. But and at the undergrad level, you have to, found, you know, foundationally take all of these different classes and then you can discover where you where you want to focus so that later in your, uh, you know, as, by the time you're a junior and a senior, you can self-select the classes in the direction that you're wanting to go. Right, so you really had a, a chance to, to try out all of these different aspects of the process and found that ultimately, in the end, it was cinematography. Obviously, that... Uh, that was where your heart lies. Yep. Did you have, uh, were there any mentors in particular who helped guide you um, through this process of, I mean, understanding, you know, the kind of cinematographer that you wanted to become? Mentors for me came um, later in in my career. Um, You know, at the school level, uh, Yuri Denisenko was one of the cinematography instructors that I had for several different classes and Michael Carmine. And I'm still still in touch with, with both of them. And uh, my narrative filmmaking instructor, Carl Bardosch, you know, p- paired me up. He, he, he showed me that he believed in me. Uh, even, even though it wasn't a cinematography class, it was, you know, you were paired up with the directors who were selected for the package, uh, you know, the equipment package that they were granted to go ahead and complete their films. I just remember him as being supportive and, you know, talking to me personally and coaching me personally and and believing in me. But other mentors came more along the way. You know, like you mentioned, I'm involved in many communities and very socially connected within the the cinematography world. And I've developed some friendships over the years uh, with different high profile, if you will, or, or very esteemed and accomplished cinematographers that have led to mentoring friendships. Uh, where, you know, and, and a lot of people ask, like, oh, how do I find a mentor? And, and and I did participate in Local 600, had an official mentorship program, and I was paired with Zach Mulligan. And that was great to have that structure because, you know, the person who signed up to be a mentor, it's like, oh, okay, I the expectations are set that I can call upon this person. They're expecting me to. Um, they're open to it. They said so. Whereas when you're just meeting people socially and it's sort of like, oh, I don't want to ask too many questions. I don't want to be too needy. I don't want to be, I don't know, if I have, the, have this person feel like I'm asking too much of them or having these expectations on our, on our friendship and relationship. So it's sort of like navigating that. Um, being like, oh, I'm getting signals from this person that they're okay with me contacting them. And when I do ask them questions, they get excited about it and they're happy to share and happy to help. And so th- those kind of friendships that developed naturally, like Larry Shear is a, someone I would put in that category. Uh, David Stump has been a, a big mentor of mine for many, many years. 
Uh, he encouraged me early on to come to Los Angeles more, to get involved in more ASC events, to come to the ASC awards. Claudia Miranda and Rodrigo Prieto, people I've crossed paths with that have been open to me calling them up and asking them questions. Uh, Stephen Poster, Alan Queso, Jim Chrysanthus was was the one who gave me my first um, television opportunity shooting uh, on the East Coast. We call them tandems in New York. They call them double ups, uh, which is a situation on on television where it's not a second unit. It's a full blown first unit that's shooting simultaneously to the main unit. So they have to break up the crew. And it, so it, it, it's shooting with the principal actors and often on the principal sets. It is a lot of responsibility and actually hard to land those those opportunities if you're not already, for example, the camera operator on that show getting a bump for the day. So Jim Chrysanthus uh, believed in me and, and brought me on to to do some of that work for a TV show called The Family back in 2015. So you've gone through the program at NYU and you've decided that you want to be a cinematographer and you've got your degree. Did you enter the industry directly or did you work around the periphery on, on independent projects? Yeah, I started out in, in short films, you know, get, getting out of film school. It's, you know, back then you didn't, we, we only shot on film. So you didn't get a copy of most of what you had shot. So it took a long, long time to get enough material to to get a demo reel as a, as a DP. So you had to work either as a gaffer or an electrician or an AC to support yourself w- while you're continuing to work for free for a much longer period of time than it takes even now. So I, I tried ACing. It really, I wasn't any good at it. And lighting was much more uh, of interest to me creatively. Like, it was always different. And every person that you worked with, you could learn something new. So I gravitated towards the lighting department. And I was a gaffer, even for my fellow students. So when I got out of school, I was like, okay, what can I do to actually make some money? No one's going to hire me as a DP yet to to pay me for their projects. So I started working as a gaffer, first on, on short films and independent films, and Columbia University Films would, would pay uh, some of their crew, and then started doing features. Actually, I didn't get to jump into gaffing features right away. I was gaffing um, very small projects where I really wasn't advancing or learning anything, and the DPs that I was working for didn't really know anything more than I did. They just, you know, had a, a reel or connections that allowed them to get those jobs. So I was like, I need to learn more. So I, I approached several of my colleagues who had, uh, who were now gaffing features or had, had graduated before me. And I was like, hey, I know you know me as a gaffer, but I want to um, take a step back and be the, the smaller fish in the bigger pond so I can get exposure to bigger tools and bigger crews. So I started working as an electrician, and then I uh, started gaffing non-union features and then I ultimately joined the union as an electrician. And I worked on Sex in the City and Law and Order as a regular day player in the lighting department. Uh, but even that took several years to get to the point to be able to work at a union level. But this was all as a game plan, if you will, as a side job where I continued to shoot short films, student films, whatever I could get my hands on for free until my reel was strong enough as a DP to be competitive to win paid jobs. Aside from just wanting to gain the experience and build the reel that will get you the job. What were some of your early career goals? Like, what kind of jobs did you want to go after? I always wanted to make movies. I I wanted to shoot 
features. And, and I was surprised in film school when we were told it takes about 10 years after you get out of school of you cutting your teeth and paying your dues to, you know, actually get it, quote unquote, get anywhere. There are certainly the exceptions to that. And I wanted to be one of the exceptions to that. But I, I you know, found out in the long run that that, it, that turned out actually to be true. Um, but it, it was always it was always movies. And, you know, by the time I had shot a few um, very small indie features and was starting to get to the point where I was hoping to get bigger features was when the entire independent filmmaking uh, financial and funding structure collapsed or changed, if you will. So so there became no more middle-class films. It was like once you'd shot, you know, a few $1 or $2 million films, you know, it, it used to be there were 5 and 15 and 20, you know, before you got to the 40 and now 100 and $200 million films. But those pretty much evaporated around the time that I was ready to be moving in that direction. So that, that's when I realized that television had taken uh, the place of that, that, that once you'd shot a few indie movies, the next step up the rung of the ladder, if you will, w- was TV. So I was like, all right, I, that's where I want to go next. And I've been, you know, trying to uh, move into television for eight to ten years before I uh, finally landed my own first full TV series as a DP. You said it takes that long to, to get anywhere in your career, but can you talk a little bit about the persistence, like finding the endurance, right, to and the patience to wait that long for something to happen without the guarantee that it will ever come, right? You just kind of have to trust that if you stick with it long enough— It'll happen, right? You have to believe in yourself and you have to be okay with, you know, I got to a point where it's like, what if this never happens? Like, you know, there are no guarantees and this is proving to be incredibly difficult to, to break through to this next level. And what if this is my career? What if this is all I ever get to despite being, you know, an ambitious person and having my sights set on that? You know, can I be okay with what I'm doing now and feel satisfied with my life. So there's a lot of, I don't know, personal growth that goes along with sticking it out for the long haul and a lot of questioning yourself. I mean, the, the, I, one of the most valuable pieces of advice I got way back in that program from that mentor when I was deciding whether to pursue this as a career. And he said, you know, it's an incredibly difficult career. Your life will be hard. It's uh, the, the ch- chances of success are very low. You have what it takes, and I encourage you to do it. But, you know, I need to tell you, if if you can see yourself, if you could do anything else besides this, you should do that. And I, that sounds discouraging, but I, I don't see it that way, actually. I, I see it as more of a um, asking yourself the tough questions and be like, if, you're, if you ask yourself that question, and if that's able to um, make you change your mind, then you, in fact, do not have the resolve, the commitment, the love, the passion to see this through and, and stick it out in the way that you're going to need to to make it. Um, it, it and I did ask myself, could I do anything else? And the answer was no. I, I, I have to do this. This is what I am meant to do. If I do anything else, if I choose anything else to do with my life, I will be 
always asking myself, what if, what could have been? Like, I'm, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it right now. Like, um, I, I would be, no, I really want, what I really want to be doing is that. And so that resolve, if, if you will, you know, come 9-11 when, you know, New York, uh, the, the trade center fell, there was no work in New York for close to two years. And my husband is also in the industry, and we were established enough at that point that we had invested our life in this direction and hadn't done anything else with our life. And there was no work. And our savings that we had saved up to go on a European trip became our living expenses. And we're like, what if it never comes back in New York? Do we, at the time, Canada was thriving. It's like, do we move to Canada? Do we move to Los Angeles? Do we pick something else to do? And we both sat down and made ourselves basically do this exercise of what else could I do with my life? What else could I, am I good at or are my skills transferable or would I find you know, satisfying to do. And it was so, so, so hard to pick something. And that exercise, if you will, and asking yourself those hard questions gave us more confidence and security that we were doing what we were meant to be doing and that we did not want to do anything else and that we were willing to stick it out no matter what. And, you know, the last few years for me before I got this this show were probably the most challenging professionally of my entire life. I had four features that I was hired for that were all, you know, union films of budgets that were moving in the direction for me to, you know, forward momentum with my career. And after prepping to varying degrees, I, I prepped four films that all, I did not end up shooting any of them. So I spent an entire year working with nothing to show for it. And the basically the independent films just broke my heart, like crushed me. Um, and I was just like, I can't take this anymore. I need a TV show. <laughs> like I need something with financial security and stability that I know is actually going to happen, that isn't going to fall apart, that, that I, I had wanted TV for a while, but how brokenhearted and, and beaten down I was after four in a row took my resolve to a whole other level that I may have been lacking um, in terms of being afraid to to give my life over to television and all the sacrifice that goes along with that, that I was so fed up. I was like, I need a TV show. And, and, and then I got one. What were some of the things that kept you going? You know, you talked about that moment where you and your husband, you made the decision that like, this is the path that you, you were going to follow. But like, while you're on that path, what are some of the highlights, some of the milestones? Yeah, I mean, I had some really good projects that were really satisfying. And, you know, sometimes after slow periods where I would just be be in the seat, if you will, and, and think to myself, I'm really good at my job. Like, I, uh, I thrive at this. I, I'm... I'm good. <laughs> and on all of the doubts that I might have in the periods of not working, I need to remember how this feels right now, that when I am doing it, I am good at this and someone would be lucky to have me. Some, like, Because there's so much about convincing other people to hire you for you to get to do what you want to do. You know, you're not a a writer, director, producer that launches projects. You have to find projects that exist that you think are a good fit for you that you want to do and land that job. That's like so much of our our career. 
So the the that comes with a lot of insecurity and and you know questioning: Am I good enough? Are you know do I have what it takes? Am I not as good as I think I am? Are other people better than me? And so all of that self doubt that you know once I was doing it, when I would have a, a good and satisfying job, I would be like. Yeah, I'm really good. I need to remember that <laughs> when I'm, you know, between between jobs. And there there was a um there's a producer uh named Ramel Foster Owens in Los Angeles and her email signature has a quote at the bottom that says as long as you don't get out of line, your turn will come. And I've always found that really inspiring and it, I I've I've remember, you know, when I get discouraged, I remember it looks like nothing's happening, and then one afternoon I get a call from the line producer of Transparent, the TV show, being like, hey, we're looking for a DP for next season. And it's like, that just came out of the blue, you know? And then, you know, a couple years later, I'm like, oh, nothing's happening, I'm stuck, whatever. And I get a call from one of the producers of Grey's Anatomy. Like, not even through my agent, just like a direct phone call <laughs> from different connections that I have. And those are the... And, and I didn't end up working on either of those projects, but those, like, you never know when you could get a call out of the blue that could potentially change your life. Like, those were the kinds of things that kept me going, is, like, it could happen tomorrow. It could happen this afternoon. Uh, if you if you stop now, if you give up, it certainly won't happen. So just just stick it out. Yeah, that's part of the hustle I was talking about before, which I think includes something that I've always admired about you, which is which are your your networking skills and your ability to self-promote, um, to meet people and to to communicate really well, person to person. Could you maybe elaborate on the kind of skills that a cinematographer must possess apart from those related to the craft to effectively advance their career? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite ways of describing the, this job or this career, yeah, not even career, because I'll separate the, the job itself from the career aspect to it, that being a cinematographer is be, is one-third technical, one-third creative, and one-third managerial. And a lot of people don't recognize that the managerial is just as strong a proportion and just as important a skill as your craft and your artistry and your knowledge of your of your tools. And so that's something I think needs needs developing just as much as the others. You have to recognize that you're a manager and your job is communication. How you deal with conflict, how you inspire your team, the the politics of it being, you know, savvy to the politics of the job, how to be accountable and take ownership when you fucked up in a way that people will still respect you, uh, how you come across to other people, how you communicate with other people. All, all of those things are an incredibly important part of the job. You could be the most talented, most brilliant artist out there, but if you don't have the ability to express your ideas to your team and you don't know how to uh, enact the... Uh, approach and stay on schedule and stay on budget. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get anywhere. Like that, those great ideas that you have within you are not gonna be able to come forth and exist in the world if you do not excel at communication. So that is something that I encourage people to develop within themselves. If that's not something that they feel strong or confident about, that that is an incredibly important part of your job that you need to work on. 
In terms of networking, of course, people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But take that a step farther. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. So if people don't know who you are, if people don't know you're out there, you know, you could be the best person for their project and they won't find you. So you need to put yourself out there. You know, No Film School did an article featuring me and my advice for my tips for navigating the Sundance Film Festival, which I would, would go to every year. And it, the, the article resurfaces every year as lasting great advice that applies to networking in general, not just Sundance-specific. And what I think is one of the most enduring tips in there about networking is to, to think about it like you're just making new friends. Like, I, I remember when I got out of school and I was really reticent l- l- or resistant, like I know a lot of people are, to this idea of, of schmoozing, that it was dirty, that you were gross, and <laughs> you were just trying to take things from other people, and people could smell that all over you. So don't do that. Don't just try to take things from other people. Don't approach your relationships as a, you know, what can this person do for me? Like, if you are giving and generous and a connector yourself and you make connections for other people, people see it as a as a relationship, as a mutuality of like, this is a person that I want to know. I'm not talking about you viewing others. I'm talking about how others view you because um, it's, it's, you're not, you know, it, don't, don't think of it like trying to convince someone that you, when you meet someone at a party that you're trying to convince them to give you a job. Think of it as uh, making new friends. And you never know, you know, which ones are going to lead anywhere. I liken it to planting seeds. You have to plant a lot of seeds, and you never know which ones are going to grow. You never know how long they're going to take to grow. If you plant them and never pay attention to them, again, they're a lot less likely to grow than if you tend to them and, and give them attention. So I, I think that, you know, I learned early on the difference between the people that I knew that I saw successful and the talented ones that were were suffering in obscurity was that people knew who they were. And, and I wasn't comfortable at first with this idea of marketing yourself or, or networking, and I realized I needed to become comfortable with it. And so I pushed myself, and it got easier, and I started to see what worked and didn't work for myself. And I came to learn that I had good... I had good um, results when I met people in person. When when someone met me that I, uh, you know, that interpersonal exchange of energy or, you know, maybe I left a good impression on them or whatever, that, I, that those were the relationships that lasted over time or those were the ones that were more likely to lead to anything in terms of uh, work possibilities. So I made it a point like, okay, you need to go out. You need to go to events. You need to go to Sundance. You need to go to L.A. I spend a few months a year in L.A., and I have a whole life in L.A. where there are people that I know in L.A. who don't even realize that my permanent residence is New York. (laughs) They just think that I'm there um, all the time because I'm there often enough that I see them often enough, which is is fine. You know, like I had someone uh, who was looking for a New York DP, and they're like, oh, no, they need to be a New York local. And I'm like, I am a New York local. (laughs) They're like, oh, I had no idea. I only ever see you in L.A. So I spent a lot of time and a lot of money getting myself to where where people are and and meeting people and and being involved 
in the community and, and not just as a taker, but, but as a giver. Can I say a little more about about the selling yourself aspect? Oh, yeah, please. Because there's, you know, there's networking, which is really just meeting people, and then there is the selling yourself. The promotion. The, the promotion aspect to it. And they're, they're both important, and, and I think you need to do both. Uh, and different people have strengths and different comfort levels with different aspects to that. But uh, I remember learning, you know, that as a freelancer, you are the CEO of You, Inc., You are the only person who's responsible (laughs) for yourself and your career. And you need to learn, you know, entrepreneurial skills. You need to learn how to market yourself. You need to learn promotion. You need to learn accounting. You need to learn how to follow up. You know, I've done a few, you know, business coaching courses and entertainment industry coaching. And, you know, I've, I've always been someone who wants to to grow and, and develop myself. And, and I think that that's the difference that I see in a lot of people who feel stuck and don't know what to do with, like, well, how do I find the work? And it's like, well, what are you doing now? And what could you be doing? And what are the people that you know who are succeeding in the ways that you wish you could? What are they doing? So it, it's a lot of questions about those kinds of things. And there's there's no clear answer. Everyone needs to decide what works for them, how much attention and bandwidth they're going to put on it. But basically, if, if, if you're not working or you're not working at the level that you want to be, you need to invest in getting yourself there. It's, it's not necessarily going to happen by itself. And self-promotion is a fine line, right? Some people find it annoying and get sick of it. But like if if you listen to everyone, if you listen to all the haters, you know, you can be just trapped in 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 action. So you need to find what what works for you, what pays off, what you enjoy doing, what you can tolerate doing, even if you don't like it. Like I've found that I'm good at public speaking. So any speaking engagements that come my way, whether that's a podcast or a panel or moderating or a masterclass, you know, I'm good at teaching. I don't want a full-time teaching position, but I'll do a workshop. I'll do some mentorship. So it's like, okay, I have these skills. These serve me well. I'm going to put my energy in those directions. And that's different for everyone. So you need to explore that and find that for yourself. So how does all of the foregoing lead us to your your current job as a, a, a series cinematographer, as one of the rotating series cinematographers on the CBS procedural East New York. Uh, I'm going to answer that question, but first I want to shout out to to my other cinematographer, being a series cinematographer that's alternating. Uh, I'm very uh, excited to be alternating with Zeus Morand, is uh, the other series cinematographer on the show, and the pilot was shot by Cliff Charles, who I've known for many years. But back back to the you know how I'll go back to the planting seeds analogy, like what seeds that I have planted that have born fruit <laughs> that have gotten me to where I am today are are interesting and varied, actually. So um, the line producer and, and co-executive producer on the show, Cotty Johnston, was the UPM on Law & Order. And I was an electrician on Law & Order a very, very, very long time ago, <laughs> back on the original uh, mothership, uh, we called it, the, the original LNO. Um, so I knew her from then. And I... When I started to set my sights on TV, one of the things that I did was like, you know, okay, where's where's the gap? Where where do I want to be and where am I now and how do I get from where I am to there? And so I asked a few people that I knew out for coffee for like informational interviews about 
um, how the TV world works. How does hiring work? What would you need to see for a DP candidate to uh, feel that they are qualified to, um, you know, be willing to hire them? What what kind of experience do I need that I don't have yet to, to build in that direction if I want to get into TV? And one of the people that I took out for coffee was Kati. So she knew that I wanted to do TV. And I'm sure she gave me some valuable answers at the time, as as did several other people, uh, that gave me some direction of, of, of where I could focus my energies. And other than that, Cotty's been on a, a several long-form television shows for many years, back-to-back in a row, and we've not had the opportunity to work together. But she has seen me on social media. So I have posted on—I used to be very ap- active on Facebook, and then I've moved my— efforts more to Instagram, check in on Facebook every once in a while, but have my Instagram feeding my Facebook. And so she would have seen that I had a a feature come out with the all-star cast and a theatrical release or or just over the years that the direction that my career um, was progressing. And I hadn't spoken to her, but when this show came up, it's interesting because there were three different pathways that led to this show. Uh, One was Cotty. Uh, one was my agents, um, and one was I ran into someone at an arts festival in Staten Island called Figment, which is like a family arts festival, and someone I knew had sent me a script, and they had they were in film school, and they'd asked if I could read it, and I told them that I was trying to get a TV show, and someone, a mutual friend who is the stand-in on our show, who had done the pilot, <laughs> overheard us talking about it. And she's like, oh, you, and I, I didn't know her from film. I knew her from um, like the Burning Man community. She's like, oh, you work in TV? I work in TV. And she, um, I'm like, yeah, I'm looking to get a TV show. And she's like, I just did this really great pilot called East New York. I haven't heard whether it's going to, you know, whether it's picked up yet, but it's so good. I think it, it probably will. So I went home and called my agents and was like, hey, can you find out? Oh, she also happened to know that the camera crew who had done the pilot, which was Cliff Charles and his team, um, had moved on to another show or another movie and then they weren't going to be available for the series and that they were going to be needing a DP. So I called my agent and was like, hey, can you find out about East New York? And then he looked in with the other agents in, in the agency and was like, oh, you you have been submitted for that. Like uh, the other people on the team knew that you're trying to get a TV show. So I get a Facebook message from Cotty and she's like, hey, I'm crewing up for a new show. Um, you know, what's your availability like? And she didn't say what the show was. So I called my agent. I was like, do you know what show Cotty Johnston's affiliated with? And he's like, oh, that's East New York. So I interviewed for the for the show. At the time, I was interviewing for several other TV shows. I've been interviewing steadily for TV for several, several years and getting very close over and over and over again. So I had a lot of interviewing experience at this point. Uh, but I, I, you know, my, my agents kept saying, you know, you're getting so far in, in the process every time you interview, one of these is going to hit. One of these is going to decide that you're the right person for them. So, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. So I had the interview and I got the job and, um, you know, I, I asked about it later and Cotty told me that, you know, they were interviewing several candidates and the producing director said to her, I think we're in a good position that we could, um, maybe find a candidate that's ready for the opportunity. And when she heard that, she's like, ah, I have someone for you. Because she knew I I didn't have a TV show. I hadn't done a TV show yet, which is a huge barrier. Until you get 
you don't get hired to shoot TV until you've shot TV. It's, it's incredibly difficult to land the first show and to have someone decide to give you that opportunity. You're, you're competing against uh, several other people who already have done TV shows. So, like, why would they pick you when they could pick someone who's done an, another TV show, have already a proven track record in television? They need to feel that you are the right person for the job, despite the experience of the people you're competing against, and that you uh, are ready, that, that you're ready to step into that opportunity when you haven't technically proven yourself in that arena before. So that that's a hard uh, milestone to, uh, to, to or, or hurdle, if you will, to to get over. And that took a really long time um, to, to find that show. And so I'll, I'll be eternally grateful to, to Mike Robin and uh, who's our producing director and Cotty for uh, giving me that opportunity for believing in me. How ready were you for this opportunity? I was really, really ready. I had my, and I can say that now that I've done it. You, you, I mean, that that would be a, you know, um, maybe a hubris thing to say. Like, how do you know if you haven't done it? Of course you think you're ready. How cocky. But now that I've done it, I can say in retrospect that I was incredibly ready because I'm doing it and I'm thriving and I'm killing it. I'm killing it, so to say, as as uh, my colleagues are saying. I had several friends who I would speak to regularly who had who were working in TV, who came from the same backgrounds as me, who were like, what was it like for them to get their first show? And I just kept hearing from so many people who knew me, like, you you have what it takes, you have the experience, you um, all of your experiences up until now will uh, inform you. To, basically, once you once someone gives you the opportunity, you're going to kill it. Like you you you're not going to crash and burn. Basically, you're gonna you're gonna do great. I heard that from so many people that I believed it. <laughs> that I was like, they must. If it was one or two people, and like, oh great, so and so believes in me, or you know, this person's blowing smoke up my ass or whatever. But I heard it from so many different people, so many times, who knew me well enough. Um, you know, to to know what my experience and qualifications were that I that I believed it, and um, they were they were right. But uh, I was I was worried. You know, like I I had imposter syndrome, just like everybody else. What if I fuck it up? What if I'm not as ready as I think I am? What if you know? What if I'm in over my head? What if I crash and burn? What if I make some big political mistake? What if I'm not? fast enough? What if they don't like me? You know, there's so many doubts and insecurities that we need to face, you know, all the time as artists and as freelancers. And I and I certainly had all of that, but it was basically like you just, you need to learn how to manage that kind of negative self-talk and, and how to, you know, find your, your strength and resolve despite any of your doubts. I, I One of the things that I did strategically was um, was not going first. <laughs> So being it was a, it's a season one show, and the the pilot DP, as I already mentioned, was not um, sticking with the show. So it, myself and Zeus, it was both of our first TV series, and I knew that whoever was gonna go first, that they were gonna be under a microscope, and I would be afraid of basically pleasing people and be afraid of getting fired. So I was like, all right, you go first. You stick your neck out and I'm going to learn 
<laughs> I mean, we it was it was up to the producers of of who was going to go first, but they they hadn't decided yet. And at a certain point, I said something. I knew Zeus wanted to go first, and I I knew I didn't want to go first. And uh, Roy Wagner, one of my mentors, had had given me the advice: if if you have any say in the matter, don't go first. <laughs> And uh, so at a certain point, I said something. I was like, hey, since you haven't decided yet, you know, if, if it helps, we, we we're both in alignment with Zeus going first. <laughs> um, so that that helped. That to me was a tactic for helping me, you know, step into the unknown and like, what is this going to be? So now I had this this partner, this other DP who I had established a great relationship out of the bat in terms of us collaborating on what direction we wanted to take the show and I got to hear from him like okay what's working what's not working what are the expectations you know what would you have done differently what are you learning as you go and like you know so by the time I stepped into my first episode I was armed with plenty of information that I felt more prepared and more brave but in terms of of being ready I mean part of it is being psychologically ready but then it's also just you know the skills right so once I started doing it, I was like, I got this. Uh, I knew how to communicate with my crew. I interviewed uh, people that I knew, you know, got to start my relationship with my keys, you know, early on and at the interview process and, um, you know, got enough prep for the show itself to, you know, know what we were wanting to do and, and you know, how much time we had. And uh, a lot, I mean, so much of it is time management <laughs> with, with television. I mean, with cinematography overall, of course, but with, with television especially, that was, I, I wasn't concerned about doing good work. I was more concerned with meeting the time restrictions and being able to do good work under the time restrictions. Like th- there's a big, one of the big skills you have to learn is uh, choosing your battles and how, um, when to call it, when to call it good enough, when to be like, okay, you could spend forever improving and tweaking something and you don't get forever. So it's like, when do you ask, for, when do you take the time? When do you ask for more time? When do you make up, how do you make up the time? Uh, when do you not, when do you let things go that could be more perfect, but perfection can't be the goal. It's it's balance. It's, it's be, you know, doing as good as you can with the time that you have and being acutely aware of that. Right. It's like having come this far, how could you not be ready? So now that you're here and you're you're on a show and you're you've got a crew and you're doing it, you you're doing this thing that you've been working towards for so long. What kinds of hurdles do you still have to face? Yeah, the hurdles are are consistently time. And then e- each episode you're getting a new director. So you can get in a groove and, you know, how a certain person likes to work and what they like creatively and what your spark, your creative collaborative spark is with this individual and navigating that relationship. And, you know, our episodes are seven and a half days. And then um, you get into a groove with somebody and now you get now you're getting somebody new. And, And your prep period is also very short. So getting to know that person quickly and getting to find out what their interests and strengths are as a director and what they need from you and listening um, and, and everyone's communication styles being different and everyone's way of expressing themselves visually being different. Like the the adapting to new directors each week is is exciting, uh, but that's also a, a, 
an interesting part of the of the challenge of, of working in TV. And the other is the longevity of it. You know, our, our show, we've got 21 episodes, and which we didn't know going in. We, we hoped that we'd get 18. You know, it started with a 12-episode um, order with the, if, if the show did well, the possibility of a, a back five pickup. And we, we got our back five, and then they added another three. So now, you know, we're, we're the number two new series on any network. So the, the show is doing, doing really, really well. And so they extended it. So now it's like working from July to April and pacing yourself <laughs> creatively and energetically and emotionally and psychologically. That, that's been, you know, an interesting, I, I mean, I, I, I knew what I was in for theoretically, but until, so I'm not complaining, but once you're in it, it's, 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 you can't know what it is until you do it, of course. So that self-time management, if you will, like how much, uh, how do, how do I spend my weekends and, and maybe evenings when I'm on prep? It's, it, a lot of it is I spend it working. I spend it wanting to stay on top and abreast of, you know, what's coming up the following week and then watching the show and doing color correction. You know, so I, even though I have weekends off, I probably spend, you know, a bunch of, of those hours on things having to do with the show and then resting and relationships and life stuff <laughs> is, is us like learning how to navigate that in a long-term way. Like when I would do a feature that was, you know, one to two months of my life and I would give my, my hundred percent all of myself for that period of time, knowing that that would come to an end six weeks later. And then whatever I'd had to put on pause in my life, I'd pick it up later you know, this doesn't work that way. This goes on and on and on and on. So you, you, you know, I'm relating to it more like a job than than a project where this is like, oh, I have to exist in my life along with this. And, you know, this is the uh, biggest demand on my time and the majority of my life. But how do I keep the rest of my life going or afloat? And what do I have to let go of? You know, I, I remember, you know, just general success leadership um, type of reading or workshops or podcasts or whatever that I've listened to is was like the more success you you only become more successful by learning how to say no to more things is <laughs> you have to cut more things out of your life in order to have the space to take on more things in your career and so that's that's been an a welcome challenge because I'm really blessed and grateful to be in this position, but it's, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice. Right. And then what are some of the highlights? The level of the crew that I'm working with is consistently, I'm just so, so grateful to have, to have the resources. Like I'd say my first, my first day out on location on my first episode was the, the amount of that we shot. I think I don't remember I wrote it down. I put it on Instagram at the time because I was mind blown <laughs> of like how many scenes, a company move, uh, a a big load in, how many pages and like what we were able to accomplish like the the level of quality and the level of I just keep saying resources, but part part of the resources is the caliber of the crew where I'm just like, wow, the, these people are so good at their jobs. My, my gaffer, uh, Rich Newman, my, my key grip, Steve Paquette, 
our, our dolly grips, our camera operators. It's just, uh, Peter Nolan and Dave Isern, who I met on, not met, but got to work with on your mu- music video. Just consistently, like, I feel, when I think about the highlights and I think about the moments where I'm on set and I'm just like, wow, I feel such satisfaction right now, it, it has to do, I mean, sometimes it's the actors and the performance and the writing and the and the directors, the caliber of the directors I'm working with. But a lot of times it's the crew where I'm just like, wow, what, what, just how good, how good, I feel so blessed. I feel so grateful to, to be able to be working with people that are this good every day and, and, and knowing that I get to stay here. And this isn't just some, you know, one-off feature that I, I've had before, amazing uh, experiences where the crew gels and everyone's really passionate and people are talented and, and it's like, wow, we're creating something really special here and then it's over. But to have that to be like, this is, this is the team that I get to be a part of every day for a long period of time is, um, is, is just incredibly satisfying. I mean, one, one of my favorite scenes was, uh, a parking, parking garage was a a shootout. I've come to learn that my favorite scenes so far have all been the action scenes. And, um, I, I used to not really like doing much handheld. I, I don't mean as an operator, I mean, aesthetically as a cinematographer and now a lot of my favorite scenes are handheld scenes <laughs> because those are the the action scenes. I just have very strong opinions about what handheld is and is not appropriate for and it's definitely very appropriate for for action scenes. Uh so that you know whenever I get the opportunity to do something with complexity and and stunts and gunfights. I mean I I I don't like violence, <laughs> but there's also something very exciting and visceral to be in the midst of something where, you know, the stakes are high and people are moving fast and, you know, it's exciting. And, and I have a, a big night exterior coming up that I'm really excited about because of the shift of the of the officers in our in our show is it is a daytime shift. So we don't have a lot of night work on our show, which has been really nice for the, the hours. <laughs> but um, I have not uh, yet gotten to do too many big night exteriors and night exteriors are my favorite. And so having the resources to, you know, light up a few city blocks and, you know, have a big, um, you know, bust or something and, and people coming from all directions and a crane and, you know, that those are the, I'm, I'm still, as, as someone who's new to, again, the having of resources, those are the kind of things that, that I still get really excited about. Are you thinking about at all about a roadmap for the future, or are you really just kind of focused in on on the here and now and what you're doing? Uh, a little bit of both. The here and now is nice because I've spent so much of my career hustling and like the 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 constant looking for work and the constant trying to get to the next stage. You know, to be able to let that go and be like, I have a job. I have a long term job. I have a job that people have heard of. That when you know, because that was the whole thing about the indie films is is I could shoot a really uh, great uh, artistic indie film that no one's ever heard of it and no one's ever seen it. And when they see it on your resume, it means nothing to them. And it's like, I've done this work and, you know, nobody's heard of it and, and people aren't watching it. And that's really not helping my career at all, sadly. Um, so to have a, a major credit, you know, that's even if people haven't watched the show, you know, from the advertising, you know, perhaps they've heard of the show. 
um, or at least they're more likely to have heard of the show or know what it is, even if they haven't seen it. Like, oh, you know, what she done? Like, oh, I have this DP, you know, what she done? It's like, oh, she shot, you know, a couple seasons at East New York or whatever. And they're like, oh, wow, yeah. And then that is like a legitimizer for, you know, they know they know what to do with you. You're not just a anonymous stranger or they, you know, people assume that you are not qualified or established. It's like this, this is... This milestone, this big break, you know, this big break, uh, I'm hoping will open doors in terms of uh, having a whole other strata of of projects available to me. So in that in that regard, I'm really hoping and glad <laughs> to be letting go of of the constant hustle aspect that I've that I've lived in for so many years to you know just try and get a job. So yeah, I'm I'm happy, very very happy in TV. I'm I'm actually more happy in TV than I even thought I would be. And and I love my show. I love my cast. I love my producers. As I've said, I love my crew. Um, our scripts are great. Uh, so I'm I'm quite happy here. Thank you so much, Jendra, for for being here. And yeah, it was it was good talking to you again. Thanks for having me. And this was a really great experience. That was cinematographer Jendra Jarnigan talking about the trajectory of her career leading up to her work on the CBS procedural East New York. A complete transcript of the interview is available in the show notes at theasc.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews, archival articles, notes on new products and services, the ASC store, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. TheASC.com This episode was recorded and mixed by Robert Granis at Brickshop Audio in New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.